It's a joy for us to be able to continue our worship. We've uh, heard uh, God's Word, we've sung God's Word, and now we'll subject ourselves to the, the preaching of God's Word by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11, and I would encourage you to turn there if you can. If you're a visitor with us today, a guest, we have copies of God's Word provided for you in the seat in front of you. You'll find the passage today on page 944. And I would say that we'll be looking at the text much today, and I'll even be encouraging you to look at the text later on this day. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can have that one that's in uh, the seat in front of you. We'd love for you to be able to read God's Word for yourself. But we're going to look at it now. Romans 8, uh, verses 5 through 11. We're continuing our series on the foundations of the faith. And interestingly, a few weeks ago, we covered verses 1 through 4 of Romans 8 in talking about the relationship between the law and the gospel. We find ourselves at the next section in Romans Because it will also reveal for us something very foundational, something that we need to fully embrace and understand. And that is the primary difference between the righteous and the wicked. Let me read the text for us. Romans 8, uh, verses 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however... Are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your life mortal bodies, to your mortal bodies, life through His Spirit who dwells in you. You've probably heard the story before, especially if you've grown up in church. But just in case you haven't, I'll share it. An Eskimo fisherman came to town every Saturday afternoon, and he would always bring his two dogs with him. One was white, and the other was of darker color. And he had taught them how to fight on command. Essentially, the people on Saturdays would gather in the town square And they would watch these two dogs fight, and the fishermen would, from this, take bets. On some Saturdays, the darker dog would win. On other Saturdays, the lighter dog would win. 
But in every case, the Eskimo always won the bet. And so people would try to then figure out, what's the secret? What's the trick? How did this ever happen? And so only to his close circle of inner friends, he answered, the way I do it is that I starve the one and feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he is stronger. You heard that story? Sometimes it, it's used in a very uh, simple terms. Uh, a quote like this kind of gets the point across. If, if preachers like me want to help, uh, help you see the struggle that goes on in the inner person and how you can overcome that, uh, we would tell a story like this or, or one even shorter, uh, maybe something like, inside of us all there are two dogs, uh, one evil and the other good. And, and this one mean and evil one will fight against uh, the good and well-natured one. And when the way that we determine how one wins is whichever one we feed the most. The point is that through mental, intellectual, and interpersonal diet, we can determine the outcome of our behavior. Even if you've never heard the story, you can get right like it would quote-unquote preach. Like It just kind of makes sense. I mean, we all understand to some degree this struggle within our soul, and we know that when we're taking in good things, generally there's good outcomes, and when we're taking in bad things, there's generally bad outcomes. It's a very logical thing. It seems, seems, seems very wise and profound uh, on the surface. And who then can we thank for this brilliant insight into human nature? Where did this, this story uh, first originate? Was it Jesus? Paul? Augustine? Luther? Calvin? Spurgeon? Sounds like a Spurgeon, right? Wait for it. Sitting bull. If you're not familiar with your history, I am referring to the 19th century Lakota Indian leader who prophesied and then executed the defeat of General George Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Now, historians will debate where this thing actually came from, but here's what I want you to understand. As Christian as it sounds, as biblical as it may seem, it didn't come from the Bible. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's one of those popularized Christian concepts that may not be so Christian after all. It makes sense to us because we all have the experience of good and evil. Like we know what it's like to feel real struggle and temptation. For, for those of you who have even been converted and you're in Christ, you still feel that pull from time to time to do that which is wrong. It is, it is a battle, it is a struggle, it is a wrestling match. <laughs> we feel it uh, with new windows of opportunity, like a new year. We're going to make New Year's resolutions, or we reflect on our birthday, and we think, oh, this year is going to be different, I want to be better. And then we feel the pull the other way in the normal day-to-day -day, uh, experiences of life. Sometimes we, we feel this after acute failure. 
Now, whether it be uh, the hangover or the broken relationship or the lost job or the failed class, we think, man, I need to clean up my act. I need to get this thing together. And so there's this fight that goes on, and, 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 and it makes sense with us uh, Practically, because like we hear just general wisdom that's kind of spouted uh, from uh, just the culture around us. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, You've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. So if you take in good things, you're going to do good things, right? If you you take in bad, you're, you're going to do bad. It's that, um, it's that picture in the cartoons, right, of the two angels, or excuse me, the angel and the demon, kind of sitting on the shoulder. Like you, you get this, uh, this ability to listen to the one over the other. But here's the real question, friends. Do we really have within us two natures? Are there two natures? Let me ask it another way. Is moral ability before God Almighty merely a matter of our mental and relational diets? Can we become good Christians simply by, and I'm going to quote Charlie Tremendous Jones here, (laughs) changing the people we meet and the books we read? Is that how simple it is? The Apostle Paul, through our text this morning, will attempt to set the record straight. There are two kinds of dogs. There are two kinds of natures. But when you read this text carefully, it doesn't seem as if they can be in the same person at the same time. I realize I have much to prove in saying that. And so let me let Paul say it. We're in Romans 8. That means if you're reading the letter, you had to have gone through chapters 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, we saw there are only two categories of people. In Christ and in Adam. Those are your two categories. Those in Christ, they benefit from eternal life. Those in Adam will suffer eternal death. In Romans 6, Paul begins to unpack the practicalities of being in the one category or the other. And guess what? He only provides two categories. In Romans 6, he says you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. In Romans 7, guess what? He does the same thing, but he answers an objection that... um, that kind of like throws a monkey wrench into our really clear thinking. And, and so he introduces this concept of the law because some people thought in that day and time that if they just knew the rule book, if they just knew what God morally demanded of them, well, maybe that would change them and make them something different. And Paul says, even if you have access to the law, there's still only two categories. There's those who respond to the law in the flesh And they are defeated every time. And there are those who respond to the law and the Spirit. And they actually have the capacity to overcome and obey. 
And at the end of this discussion on the law, he transitions to chapter 8 and he says, guess what? You're not under the law anymore. You have the ability to obey it. And this is that great line uh, from verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, there's only two categories, in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're not condemned. And this is such good news because the condemnation here is judicial and actual. I used this analogy a few weeks ago, but let me use it again, please. When you think of a condemned house, you think of its state of disrepair. It is uninhabitable. You cannot live in it. But at the same time, you recognize that it will be condemned. It will be destroyed. There's something actual and there's something judicial. When Paul says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, he is saying that the the soul is no longer in disrepair before God. It can actually do what God intended it to do. And on top of that, it does not need to fear any judicial sentencing. It will not be forever destroyed. Two groups of people. And what he wants to enamor us with in this particular text is that the difference, the difference between the one group and the other group is none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you're in this category or that category? How do you know if you have this nature or that nature? It comes down to your relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes the effective difference. And so what I want you to be able to note today as we look at this text are the two existences affected by the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ and thereby enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have one existence, one life. And if you do not have him, you have a totally different life, a totally different existence. Uh, We'll note two things here. Uh, The the, the disparate, and I'm using disparate to talk about two totally different categories, the disparate orientations of life in and out of the Spirit, verses 5 and 6, and then the disparate outcomes, that's verses 7 through 11. Notice the two orientations. Uh, Paul is very clear about this in verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text, but you want to know what's interesting about verses 5 through 11? You see the words flesh and spirit a lot. In fact, ten different times in this text, flesh will be contrasted with spirit. Like, this is just reading 101. Paul's argument here is a contrast between flesh and spirit. And, and to help with that, we, we need to define our terms. Now, if you've been reading Paul carefully up to this point, you'll know what he means, but I'm not assuming that everybody was doing in-depth studies on Romans chapter 7 within the last week, so let me catch you up a little bit. Flesh is not, let me be clear, it's not just humanity. The Bible has no problem with us being flesh and blood. God created us that way. The the, the issue with Paul here isn't just you being human. (laughs) The issue is you being humanly enabled to please God. Uh, When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about that, that human tendency that we all have 
to do our own thing as opposed to God's thing. So flesh isn't just, again, sins of the flesh like sexual sin. Sexual sin would just be an expression of you wanting to do things your own way over God's way. So so flesh isn't mere humanity. It's that tendency that we have to please ourselves over God. And by the way, it's kind of in your DNA. When Paul says back in Romans 5 that you're either in Adam or in Christ, guess what? That means you have a family lineage, and just as you can get some, uh, some pretty nasty <laughs> uh, diseases or disfigurements genetically, so also you have some pretty nasty tendencies spiritually on account of who your first parents were. The sin that they passed on is pervasive, and it resides within every one of us. And that is why the natural person, the human person, apart from some type of supernatural influence and input, is in the flesh. They will not do that which pleases God. The second category is the spirit. Now, I'm looking around in the room, lots of visitors today. Uh, Give you a heads up, this is a Baptistic kind of church. Uh, And for some people, that means that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Uh, That is not actually true of people who are Baptistic. They just don't want the Spirit to be mischaracterized or caricatured in some way that doesn't align with what the Bible actually says. I want you to know that we very much believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what His primary work is? It is actually, He is enabling us to obey where we otherwise could not. When the text is referring to being in the Spirit, it is talking about that divine, supernatural capacity from the person of the Holy Spirit Himself to obey the laws that God has given. And this is good news. I don't know about you, friends, but I hate, hate, being given, given a job or responsibility that I cannot fulfill. And thankfully, God gives us His law, but He also enables us to fulfill it by sending His Spirit to come and energize our efforts in a way that we previously had no capacity to do. So there's this contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. And those are your two distinctive realities. Now, I want you to know, friends, that these are disparate. They are two different categories. They're not a Venn diagram. They're two different circles. Uh, Let let me try to to do a mental exercise with you. And I know that as I do this, some of you are going to have like PTSD uh, from ACT and SAT and FSA. You remember those kind of tests that you take where you fill in the little circles? And like every once in a while, they like test your logic. <laughs> and so they'll give you like a series of things, and you're supposed to think through uh, what's the pattern here. All right, so I, I want you to try to, to note a pattern, and let's see if we can get a clearer picture of what Paul's doing here. Uh, up, down, black, white, positive, negative, flesh, Spirit. He's saying these are two distinct, and this is why I used this word at the beginning, existences. Two different kinds of existence. So what, did, what does this existence look like? What, how does one differ from the other? I, I would have you look at your Bible again in verse 5. 
Notice, it says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Um, I don't think it takes much for us to get. It is a mindset. <laughs> the difference between the two is the way that their minds are set. Now, when we hear mind in our normal English 21st century Western culture, we think of the intellect alone. Like somebody who is, uh, has a, a sharp mind is really smart. But Paul, when he is referring to the mind, and that Greco-Roman conception of such, uh, it was not merely the intellect, but also the volition, uh, the will. So when we say that, that someone um, is, uh, yeah, has a, a certain kind of mindset, even in our own day, we say that they think a certain way. They have a pattern or a tendency to go a certain direction. Uh, I, I think that uh, a, a good modern word would be bent. One's bent. One's penchant. One's natural instinct uh, if, if it were, if we were talking here about someone navigating the wilderness without a GPS, we would be referring to one's true north, the north star, the, the orientation, the thing that they look at to figure out everything else. If we were thinking about how a magnet functions, we would again be thinking about polarity. Uh, where does the needle naturally go? It's orientation, I think, is a good word. Uh, what we orient our lives around, it says that the flesh is oriented around the things of the flesh. Like it always does just that sinful, human, normal thing, which happens to be pleasing self over pleasing God. I remember hearing this old uh, poem uh, as a kid at, at teen camp, uh, ironically of all places, since our teenagers are gone. There's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. I could update that to say there are only two orientations on the shelf. You are either oriented toward God or oriented toward self. The flesh is oriented toward the self. It will always please self over God. Sometimes, like a broken clock that's correct twice a day, it does good things. But that is in spite of itself, not because of it. So the, the, this mindset of the flesh is one that is oriented toward the flesh, and guess what? The mindset of the spirit is. What do you think it's oriented around? The Spirit. God and His commands, what He wants, it is an impulse from the Spirit to do that which is good. And here's the interesting thing about this. These orientations also come with certain destinations. If you're oriented toward a particular direction, you're going to end up a particular direction. And so Paul says, look at verse 6, where you'll end up if you have these two different orientations. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh, to be oriented around the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Do you see the difference between these two? They are not overlapping categories. They are two totally different outcomes of existence, flesh, death. The fruit of the flesh is death. It is literally a death-like state, unable to experience the life of the Spirit, nor the things of the Spirit of God. These are people who are governed by the flesh. And what is the outcome of the other? If your mindset is the other way, well, what does it end toward? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is life and peace. I love that, life and peace. Not just life as in the capacity to do that which is right, but also experiential peace 
You know what it's like for your life to have been a hot mess as a result of your sinful choices. And then when we do submit ourselves to Christ, the peace that comes from that, even if everything doesn't get straightened out the immediate way we want it to be, there is something good and settled, something different. It's a different destination because there is a different orientation. The orientation, the bent, the nature, the true north of your heart affects not only, friends, listen to me please, not only your eternal future, but your temporal present. If the Spirit is indeed within you, it will affect not only your eternal future in terms of heaven and hell, the things that people normally think about, but it also affects the destination there. came across this poem. I thought it was helpful in helping us see the difference. One ship drives east and another drives west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea or the ways of fate, as we voyage along through life, tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. The set of the soul. The orientation, like like where is it ultimately headed? The bent of the heart's desire, it's ultimate. Like where it ultimately wants to be. I would ask you this, friends. What is it that your heart craves and desires more than anything else? What do you want? Not what do you say that you want, but what do you really fundamentally inside you actually want? A a, a good way that we can even make this more practical is this. What is your obsession? That's your orientation. What are you devoted to? What are the things that consume your mind? In other words, what is your orientation? What is your nature? I, uh, I like here the NIV. We read the ESV. The NIV uses a different term here. It uses the word sinful nature. The reason why, friends, I, I want to be clear that there's not this, these two dogs inside of you fighting at the same time is because you can only have one nature. Nature means that which is natural to you. Uh, that's why I like the word bent. Have you ever seen warped wood? Have you ever, like, get to Lowe's or Home Depot, and, like, you need some wood for a particular project, and there's nothing left but, the, like, the shoddy, twisted junk at the bottom of the pile? And you say, oh, no, no, I can make this work. Friends, it never works. <laughs> that thing's got a bent, <laughs> and you're not straightening it out. <laughs> it's either bent one direction or it's bent the other. Your nature is either bent one way or the other. That is why, by the way, Augustine did say that the fallen nature is 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 sin excuse me, the sinful nature is humanity bent in on itself. It always thinks about what it wants over what God wants. So sure, is there a struggle between us wanting to do right and wrong? Are we ever tempted? Absolutely. I'm not denying that in the least. 
I'm just saying that something is fundamental. One is stronger than the other. There is a priority, if you will. We were just having an elders meeting the other night, and we were talking about a particular program that we run here in the church, and we we were trying to clarify what is its ultimate goal, because we had like 30 things we wanted to do with this ministry. And anyway, the wrestling match in the room was fantastic because like, we were all acknowledging, well, if this one is the ultimate, that means something else is secondary. It's like the old adage about the word priority. In the first message I ever preached here, I actually shared that back in the day when the word priority like, was first unveiled, it was always in the singular. It wasn't until the rise of the Industrial Revolution where people started using plural priorities. You know why? Because priority means first thing, highest things. You can't have multiple first things. Something's got to be first. And in a similar way, you can't have multiple first orientations or bents or natures. Something sets it over the edge. And what the text is telling us is that those who are in the Spirit, they most fundamentally are bent toward God, and those who are in the flesh are bent toward themselves and sin. And these two orientations lead us to the second point of this text, and that is two outcomes. These disparate orientations lead to disparate outcomes. They're previewed here because he says life is that which is associated with the Spirit and uh, death is that which is associated uh, with the flesh. But he unpacks these in more detail uh, in the next few verses. You'll notice in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the flesh. This is where this leads. And then in verses 9 through 11, he talks about the Spirit. And this is where this leads. Notice it says in verse 9 about the flesh, you, however... Oh, excuse me, verses 7 and (laughs) 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hey, so what's an outcome of somebody who has this bent toward the flesh? Well, there are three things here. I'll give you these for those who are taking notes. Here's the outcomes, defiance, disability, and displeasure. You know what the outcome is of having this bent toward self over the sovereign God of the universe? Well, the first thing that it says in the text is defiance. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. By the way, it's not morally neutral to God. It is hostile. It is an enemy. Some translations put at enmity, at war with God. Why? Why is it it so black and white? Why is it like such a contrast, such a disparity? Because the text says it. It's hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Like, if, if God says, hey, this is the way that I've designed life for you, this, this is what I want for you, for your well-being and for my glory, and you just straight up keep saying, no. <laughs> Are you in accordance with God? Are you morally neutral? Absolutely not. You're doing things your own way. He's not a buddy, he's a king. And he's to set a law in place for your good and his glory. And here's the problem, when you're minded around self and not him, you will disobey him almost every time. It says that you cannot submit. It, it is, there is straight up 
defiance. But this is on account of disability. There's the other outcome. Notice disability. It, it, Paul is, is, is really frank about this. He says, they do not submit to God's law. The flesh does not. And in ver- at the end of verse 7, it says, indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Like this debilitating disease inherited from our first parents, now, our moral capacity to obey God has been handicapped. You're born with a handicap. You may not know this, or you probably have put it together. I am partially colorblind, as evidenced by my jacket. I thought this was gray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Somebody came in and was like, you know, that's a green jacket. I'm like, yes, it's summertime. I'm just trying to, you know, stay with the season. Anyway, point is, yeah, I, I have a debility. One in eight men, by the way, are colorblind. One in 20,000 are totally colorblind. There are just certain colors that it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can never see. It's a disability. It's just a part of who I am. And I want you to know, all of us born in Adam inherently have a disability. We cannot obey God's law no matter how hard we may try. That's that orientation toward the flesh. You'll never be bent the right direction to obey him in a way that, in which he would be pleased. And then there's a third outcome, and that is displeasure. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't want to perpetuate uh, even more this view of, of God being this angry individual sitting up in heaven throwing lightning bolts at people uh, on account of their multiple disobediences. But at the same time, I would also like to dispel the myth of some grandfatherly figure rocking back and forth with long beard saying to everybody, it's okay, it's okay. We need to let the Bible define our view of God, and this is what it says about those who disobey Him. He is displeased. He is displeased. If you're a parent in here, you know what it's like to be displeased, <laughs> Because your kids don't do things that you tell them to do? Now, I get it. Sometimes we can be rather authoritarian and command our children to do things that we probably should have done ourselves. I think every dad in the room has been guilty of being too lazy to get up to get the remote themselves, but instead they wanted their kids to get up from playing with their Legos or whatever and go get them the remote. (laughs) All right, that's just bad leadership. But sometimes we command our kids to do things that we know would be in their best interest, and they defy those things anyway. And what does that do for you as a parent when you know that you're telling them this for their well-being, you know that this is for their best? It's displeasing. What I'm trying to do is help you get just an analogy for a moment to help you see that, that God isn't just like irrationally angry, but He is displeased when He says, look, this is the way that I'm telling you to live for your good and my glory. And then you say, no, it's displeasing to him. That's the orientation of the flesh. That's where it leads. That's why it says it's death. That outcome comes with a certain penalty. And contrast that outcome with the the outcome of the Spirit. If if you're in the Spirit, verses 9 through 11, see how how he switches up the outcomes here. You, however, talking to the Romans, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Notice he says, you're not in that category, you're in this category. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
So if the Spirit of God lives in you, you're in a different category now. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. By the way, it's interesting for those of you who are theologically inclined that in verse 9 it talks about the Spirit of God, and in verse 10 it talks about the Spirit of Christ, referring both to the same Spirit. It would be these types of things that the early church would use to clarify the doctrine of the Trinity. The Spirit of God is indeed the Spirit of Christ, who is also the Holy Spirit. One being, three persons. But notice more particularly what it's saying here, that if you have the Spirit of Christ, you're in a new category. And if you don't have Him, you don't belong to Him. So the first outcome or benefit of those who are in the Spirit is possession. We are owned by God. Have you ever seen that uh, bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot? If you have that on your car, please just ignore the statement I'm about to make. Pretend you never heard it. But I think that is a horrible thing to put on your bumper for multiple reasons. One, if you're driving poorly, you're making Jesus look bad. But second, Jesus is not your co-pilot. Like you're running this thing together. He is the pilot. He is in charge. It says that the Holy Spirit possesses you. He owns you. He pilots you. So you have a new owner in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's another outcome, though. It's not just possession. But there is also power or enablement. Look at verse 10. It says, but if Christ is in you, talking about through the presence of the Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, he's acknowledging that there still are human limitations and capacities with the physical human body. The word body here, by the way, is the Greek word soma, which is different than sarx, flesh. So Paul will acknowledge that the body has its own limitations. He knows that while we're here on this earth, like before God fully and finally purges all sin from us, we have limitations. But notice what he says, despite those limitations, even though the body is dead because of sin, even though we may still physically die, it says the spirit is life because of righteousness. Like there is life on the inside of us in where I grew up in in eastern North Carolina, and I see it some of my travels throughout the southeast, uh, there are these massive plants. Uh, Some people would consider them to be uh, invasive. I guess they are. My farming friends can help me with this. Uh, It's not from the United States, and it depends on whether you like it or not, whether you would call it invasive. It's called kudzu. You ever seen it? It will take over. Power lines, buildings, it's this, this green plant that, that just, I mean, it is just enormous. And here's the crazy thing about it. During the winter, it looks dead as a doornail. It's just a bunch of sticks. But what people don't realize is that during the winter, its roots are spreading underground. It may appear dead, but there is life there. I think of that because there are times, friends, where we look at us and our human bodies and we track our performance record and we're thinking, man, this thing looks awful dead. 
But underneath the surface, there is life. There, there are good things happening. There, there is this tendency, this orientation, this growth that is taking place that you may not even realize. He says, if the Spirit is in you, there is life there. It may not be everything you want it to be yet, but there indeed is capacity to obey God in all the ways that He expects of you on account of His Spirit residing within you. This is a beautiful outcome. That's why, friends, we read Ezekiel 37 earlier today. Because when you look at Israel's state, or even just the analogy of a bunch of dead bones lying in a valley, what was the difference between life and death? It was the presence of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is, there is life. There is capacity to do that which God has commanded you to do. And that is a beautiful outcome of life in the Spirit. So there is possession. There is power And now look at verse 11 and notice this eternal presence with God. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If verse 10 focuses more on the present, verse 11 focuses on the future. Friends, I understand that people who have the Spirit of God living within them do physically die, but so did Jesus. And just as the Spirit brought Jesus back from the physical dead to physical life, so also Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, will bring us back to life physically. This is the outcome. Do you see how there are present tense realities here and there are future realities? But this is where this thing leads. If the Spirit has changed your orientation, you now have a new destination. And instead of it being death, God's eternal wrath abiding on you for sin, being eternally separated from Him in His presence, there can be life eternal life, enjoying the physical new heavens and new earth as he intended it to be, being resurrected in the same way that Christ himself was resurrected. This is great news. One scholar put it this way, I think it's helpful. He says, subject to physical decay and death, prone to sin, tempted to let the flesh take control of us again, we may be. But to do justice to Paul, we must insist that the believer is freed from the law of sin and death dead to sin's power, no longer in the flesh, and will experience life eternal with Him again. So, are there two dogs within us? Or only one? If if I were to rework the analogy to best accord with the teaching here in Romans 8, I think I would have to agree that indeed there are two dogs. A living one and a dead one. The, 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 the dead dog is unresponsive to the owner and his commands. He may even look alive on the outside. You ever seen taxidermy? <laughs> But he stinks on account of the corruption on the inside, and he is of no pleasure to the owner. On the other hand, there's a living dog. He may not look as good as the dog that has been worked under the hand of the taxidermist on the outside. But there's life there. He can obey the owner and his commands 
inwardly. He has everything he needs to please the owner. And though he doesn't obey perfectly, he desires to obey and can actually do so. Friends, whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, I want you to understand something. It isn't just that there are these two spirits or powers inside you that are working back and forth. I want you to know this is binary. You are either in one category or the other. And the reason why I I so desperately want you to understand this is because if you think it is merely a matter of adjusting your intellectual and interpersonal diet so as to clean up yourself before God, that is works salvation. And the Bible says that person will not be saved. In fact, that kind of doctrine, Paul says in the book of Galatians, is anathema. It should be damned. All that that principle does is it just backs you up the river a little bit. Now, instead of saying, I'm going to try to be a better person, I'm going to try to clean up my own life, now you're just saying, I'm going to try to read better things, I'm going to try to hang out with different people, but it's still about you trying. And what the text is saying is, no, it's all about Jesus and what He has accomplished for you in sending His own Spirit. And friends, if this sounds radical and new to you, may I, just for a moment, read a couple of lines to you from a classic confession of faith. I do this from time to time because sometimes like we can come up with our own doctrines and you're thinking like, oh, okay, well, that's neat that Justin thinks that. But like if we've had hundreds of thousands of really smart Christians kind of agree on how to best word something like over the centuries, it's normally a good thing to kind of listen in on. So I'm reading here from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, uh, first published in 1833, And it reads as follows, talking about two categories. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. That such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in His esteem. While all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in His sight wicked and under the curse And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. Friends, there are only two kinds. You know when you get to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he does this? He says, there's two ways, there's two roads. He says, there's two kind of fruit trees. There's those that bear fruit and those that don't. He says, there are two pronouncements of judgment. One that says, enter into the kingdom. And the other that says, depart from me, I never knew you. And then... There are two kinds of buildings, Uh, one built on the rock and the other built on the sand. You know, Paul will do the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. We read part of it uh, in preparation for singing just a few moments ago. In Galatians 5, he says, hey, this is what you got. You got the works of the flesh, and here's all the things that will come from that. And then you have the fruit of the Spirit, and here's all the things that can come from that. Those are your two categories. These are the two outcomes. There's no middle ground here. You're in one or the other. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ or you're wondering whether or not you are, I would encourage you to go to Matthew 7 or to go to Galatians 5 and read through that and see which category you think you're actually in. But note, there are only two categories. And what's the difference between the two? Paul has already explained it all the way back in Romans chapter 5. 
is Christ. Jesus is the difference between the one category or the other. There were these uh, historians of the early church who did their best to try to understand the significance of what Jesus had accomplished through his death and burial and resurrection. And so they, they, would, they would talk about these, what they called uh, theories of the atonement. Like, what did the atonement accomplish? And it was just so hard for it all to be summed up in one thing. One of the outcomes that they had noted by looking carefully at the Scriptures uh, was what's called the recapitulation theory. This is the idea that mankind like messed it all up and Jesus came and he straightened it all out. So whereas the first Adam messed us all up, there would be a second Adam who would come and straighten it all out. <laughs> there is a sense in which Paul is referring to that in Romans five twelve to 21. He says, because of what Christ did, he lived and satisfied God and pleased God in all the ways that you could not. He died to satisfy God's wrath fully through his death on the cross. He rose again to provide life for you, proving that you can indeed live for him eternally. He did it all. And what is it that connects us with this work that Christ had done, with his straightening out? It ain't your efforts, your works, your intentions, or your desires. It is your faith your trust, your dependence in Jesus Christ alone. If you have forsaken your sin and self and you have found Christ to be your only Lord and Savior, there is life. You are no longer of the flesh, but you are indeed in the Spirit. And He did it all. I love the old hymn that I grew up singing as a child. We even sing it again here today. That the title is Jesus Paid It All. As I think on this text, I, I would even like to reword it. I won't do it for today, but Jesus fixed it all. All. Oh. The third verse is particularly pertinent. It says, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. The leper's spots. Where does that come from? Now, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither are you able to do good, you who are accustomed to, to doing evil. That sounds horrible. Like, man, how can I change? How can I change? Jesus fixes it all. He changes the leper's spots. He melts the heart of stone. He gives you the capacity to obey him that you otherwise did not have. He changes your destiny. It is all done in Christ. And I would say to you today here, friends, uh, there are one of two responses to this truth, and that is to repent or to rejoice. If you are out of Christ, if you are dominated by your flesh, Repent. All that means is to turn from that sin, to trust alone in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you don't even know what that means, if that language is confusing to you, you need to talk to me or someone else around you and get clear on that. Because when you repent, it will change your position before God. He will look at you as righteous. It will change your practice before God. You will actually be enabled to obey Him, and it will change your eternal presence. You will enjoy life 
with him in eternity. Say, Justin, I've already done that. What do I do? You rejoice. You rejoice that your, your position before God has changed. He looks at you. You know what he sees? He sees the temple of the Holy Spirit. He sees you as pure and holy and undefiled in his sight. And you rejoice because practically you can't obey him. It's not about you trying harder, doing more. The capacity that you have in Christ to obey him is unlimited. You say, Justin, practically speaking, are you telling me that it doesn't matter who I hang out with or, or what books I read? Or No, I'm not saying that. But you want to know why that matters so much? It's because when we read and take in things that are not centered on the gospel and when we hang out with people uh, who are not in alignment with Christ, it doesn't change our capacity. You know what it changes? It changes our identity. Like we start to think of ourselves differently. We forget who we are. We forget what Christ has done for us. And so what I'm telling you, friends, is Christ has already accomplished everything needed for you to obey him in the way that he desires. Rejoice. And rejoice not only on account of your position, and not only on account of your practice, but also on account of your presence. One day, you will physically enjoy life eternal with him. Just two choices on the shelf. Oriented toward God and the Spirit through Christ, or self. Let's pray. Father, for those who are not in Christ, for those who are oriented around self, I trust that your Spirit has been at work convincing them of their need to place their faith in Christ even this day. And I pray that even now, or that they would come fully to you to straighten out that which sin made crooked to change the destination from eternal punishment to eternal life. Well, Spirit of God, give life today where there formerly was none. And for those who are already indwelled by the Spirit of God, comfort them this day. Oh, may they rejoice in what your Son has accomplished on their behalf, and may it give them the confidence and the practical capacity to live for you in the way that you so desire. Or may they see that Jesus indeed fixed it all, that he, he has changed everything about us, and because of him, or we can indeed live lives that are pleasing to you and fruitful for you even this week. So encourage us in these ways. And we ask it all in your Son's name. Amen.